The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Wednesday, March 22nd, 2017 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. There was a fatal attack near Westminster in England today. The identity of the assailant has been misreported. We're going to hold off on saying anything. But when you hear about this, admit it. You think, I think we all think, is was it a terrorist attack? Which is inextricably bound to the question, was it a radical Islamic terrorist attack? I said it, radical Islamic. And when it is, it confirms our fears, as it should. Radical Islamic terrorists are bad dudes. They want to kill us, and they just need cars and knives to do it. So what we do is we put it in the mental category of world threat uh, for which governments need an answer. And I think governments need an answer. I think we can all agree. But sometimes you hear reports from overseas and the question plays in your mind, is it a terrorist attack? And then the answer turns out to be different. Remember this from a couple weeks ago? Police have arrested one suspect following the incidents in the town of Ras. Maybe you didn't hear about that one. I listened to a lot of BBC, but that was, as you heard, CNN. But it kind of went away pretty quickly because the answer was it was just a disturbed teenager. But then a couple of days ago, there was this attack on the airport in France where the assailant grabbed an officer's assault rifle and the assailant was shot and killed. Again, was it a terrorist attack? Yes, it was. Because of that, it's become this national issue, this international issue. Marie Le Pen harps on it. Conservative media in America hold it as an example of a trend. U.S. media show the footage. I don't know, is it a trend? Is this what we have to watch out for? The radical Islamic terrorists are going to try to grab the guns out of our soldiers' hands? Anyway, I'm not saying that any of this, that putting it on the news is bad news judgment. It's just that there are a lot of attacks and a lot of murders that don't fall into a category that we care about or would pay attention to. It's almost as if the media is reporting things not from the international murder beat, but the international terrorism beat. And sometimes they have to report it before they know it's terrorism. And if it's not terrorism, same incident. They would say, oh, never mind, essentially, by not really following up or letting us know what happened. But if it is terrorism, then it becomes an important thing for us to listen to. And the downside of that is that all these other incidents fall into a category that we don't care about, but maybe we should, like guns or mentally unwell people. And all the incidents that are under the category of terrorism properly become elevated. All sympathy to Britain, no diminution of how seriously we should take the threat of terrorism. But if it is the only type of violence we pay attention to, then we will inevitably come to believe that it's the only type of violence there is, and that's just not true. On the show today, I give Donald Trump his due. In all fairness, a new segment, in all fairness to Donald Trump. But first, oh, this is going to be good, the American Healthcare Act will be voted on probably within 24 hours, though it is a podcast and you could listen to this next month. So let's go inside the Acha with Slate's Jim Newell and Jordan Weissman. The vote on Ryan Care, Trump Care, the ACHA, American uh, reform of the ACA, is nigh. But will it be nay? Right now there are 27 plus or minus five Republicans who are not on the Acha train. Jim Newell of Slate has been counting noses and nose. Jordan Weissman of Slate, the money box columnist, our policy expert on things healthcare and economic. He's also here. Hi, guys. How are you? Doing well, thanks. Doing good. So, Jordan, I'm going to start with you only because I think I have a lot of questions for Jim, but I want to lay the groundwork <laughs> first. All right. What we know 
economically is that CBO score of 24 million over 10 years losing health care, but also, and less reported except on the front page of the Wall Street Journal, it would uh, redound to something like $330 billion more in the Treasury. Are there any other big numbers that we've realized that have come out or maybe that uh, have been unearthed over some of the changes that have been proposed to the ACHA? Well, I mean, I think there's also, I mean, there are a lot of numbers you could pick. There's 600 something billion dollars in tax cuts involved in this bill as well. Uh, there's the $880 billion in me- Medicaid cuts. You know, that that number might change a little bit given edits that Paul Ryan's planning before they actually vote on this bill. But I mean, you know, there's a 750% that premiums could end up going up for some older uh, Americans. Uh, yeah, I mean, there are all sorts of terrifying numbers about this bill. And that kind of speaks to why it's such a squeaker of a vote, right? This is almost nobody is defending this thing on the merits, even from the either from the Republican, you know, hardcore conservative side or from the moderate side. Well, I think some people are. I think Paul Ryan is at least trying to. Uh, Jim, what's your sense of that? Yeah, I think Paul Ryan just really wants to get a bill through and is ready to do whatever he wants. But yeah, the numbers, it's not, the problem with this bill is it's not really a health policy reform bill. It is a a big cut to Medicaid and a big tax cut. So a lot of the things that people thought they were going to do in this bill, you know, reforming the individual market, um, more choice among plans, a lot of those you can't do because they chose to do it through reconciliation, which means you only need 50 votes in the Senate. And things that you do through reconciliation can only directly affect the budget. So any sort of policy reform, you can't really do that through this process. So that's part of the problem here. People were promised they were going to do a health reform bill. And now there, it's just a couple of other uh, other issues not really relating to that. And that's some of the tension. Jordan, is it really a tax cut or is it just if we're not going to be funding Obamacare, there's no reason to take people's taxes for it? Well, I mean, that's a tax cut. But right? it was a tax cut. <laughs> it's, I mean, it's, but it was a tax cut that doesn't it was a tax cut to take away the funding mechanism of this thing that no longer needs funding. Well, that's nonetheless. Yeah. I mean, I guess that's a way to put it. You mm-hmm. could make that roundabout argument. But in the end, you could, if you thought Obamacare was absolutely terrible, you could end Obamacare and, and use the leftover money for some other fabulous program. You know, one of the taxes that's being cut is essentially capital gains. You know, is there something directly related between capital gains taxes and uh, health care policy? I think not. Either way, a lot of very wealthy people are going to make out well from this bill. Jim, let's talk about the no votes. There are about 40 members of the Freedom Caucus. And as I said, and and maybe you have uh, an accurate number, though, by the time someone listens to this, it'll change by a little bit. So there are fewer than 40 objectors to this bill. How do, you know, 10 or 12 members of the Freedom Caucus come around to say, yeah, it's good enough for me? Well, some members of the Freedom Caucus were turned around by certain tweaks they made to Medicaid, which they basically cut Medicaid a little bit more, made that section of the bill a little more stringent. So some conservatives came around based on that. But you still have just in the Freedom Caucus probably around 25, which is more than enough to sink the bill. You need now 22. uh, Well, they can afford to lose 22. So you need 23 no votes to sink the bill. And they have more than enough in the Freedom Caucus. And it seems like that number is staying after uh, Donald Trump came to the Hill yesterday because they don't they really want policy reforms, and it's sort of at this logjam now because leaders are saying we can't do it through this bill. And they're saying, well, you have to. And I have to say the Freedom Caucus members, even if you know they're, they're much more conservative than I am or a lot of people are, they, they are a little bit more coherent on this. If you want to have a conservative health policy vision, you sort of have to go after the regulations in a bill. And you can't just have promises to do that later. 
these half measures sort of make it difficult for everyone. It doesn't do what conservatives want to do. And for moderates, it makes it something that is just a weaker version of what's already there. Who besides the Freedom Caucus is objecting? There are some moderates out there who sort of have different reasons uh, elsewhere. There are some moderates who hospitals are big employers in their district. And if you take insurance away from that many people, the hospitals aren't going to like it because they're going to have to eat a lot more costs. You have other moderates who are just concerned that this bill also tries to defund Planned Parenthood and they're not quite on board with that. If you look, there was this sweetheart deal or sweetener or whatever you want to call it offered to the the New York delegation of Republicans. So remember the um, corn, the Cornhusker kickback? Is anyone calling this the Buffalo buy-off? Yeah, actually. So I was outside the uh, the Freedom <laughs> Caucus meeting on Monday night. And while we were out, we were sitting, you know, on the floor for like an hour and a half waiting for these people to come out to see what they were saying. And we just workshopped this for like an hour straight. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There was the, you know, the Poughkeepsie Payola, the Tammany Hall, H-A-U-L. Uh, oh, oh, that's working on a couple Yeah. Levels. Um, but yeah, you, you see, I think moderates, it, it's strange because this bill doesn't do anything for them. But they can at least, I, I don't know, they're more comfortable negotiating something for their district out of it and then voting for the bill just because I think they're less agitators in nature. Jordan, have you been following any of the tweaks? So some concessions have been made. The New York reimbursement thing is really opaque. If you want to get into that, God bless you. But in general, what this allows some Republicans to do is say, well, with these new buy-offs, kickbacks, tweaks, you, this changes the CBO score. Uh, the CBO doesn't score it anew, but they can at least argue, don't trust those numbers because we got these uh, changes to the bill. Have you been following any of that and if those arguments are accurate? Yeah, I have been following them. And I actually, I don't think it's so much about the CBO score um, or the changes because specifically the way they made the tweaks, if, if the CBO were to redo it, yeah. um, it wouldn't really improve things. It actually might even worsen it. But there are some big ideological concessions that they made to the Freedom Caucus types, the hard right. And specifically... Um, they are they they created what was what's called a a full block grant option for Medicaid, and this is essentially would allow Medicaid to be kind of treated the way welfare was in the '90s. It's a full on version of, of um, let the state kick it to the states, kick it to the states. Yeah, capping the amount of money you're giving to the states and let the states do whatever they want with it, right? And on top of that, they're also explicitly going to allow states to adopt work requirements, which is another thing that was sort of we associate with welfare reform. And I think this actually. Um, speaks to kind of a a bigger but quiet story that's been going on, which is conservatives, hardcore conservatives who who are interested in this bill, see an opportunity to accomplish something that they've been trying to do for over 20 years now, which is basically um, really cut down Medicaid to size the same way welfare was. And that was something they tried to do in the 90s and failed. And now some of these tweaks we're seeing in the bill are actually going to allow them to do that. Of the 20-whatever Republicans who might vote no on this, how many, I mean, you always have to be worried about your own re-election chances. How many of them are in safe districts? And what's their calculation? Because you could paint it two ways. Maybe they're worried about uh, what Trump says, threatening him, or maybe they're worried about being primaried uh, if they're not conservative enough, Jim. None of these conservatives have really anything to worry about uh, in term, uh, politically. I mean, there's some threat that they could get a primary challenger because that's the only they would lose in these like really deep red districts they represent. But these are pretty well-known commodities within their district. And I think it's important here to point out that the Republican base, so the, the Freedom Caucus members in Trump overlap a little bit in their bases. They represent some of the same pretty deep red constituents. None of the these constituents are, are on board with this bill. 
if you talk to any of these Freedom Caucus members, they're saying the calls they're getting and the you know enthusiasm is definitely against blocking quote unquote Ryan Care because they think it's you know they never really liked Paul Ryan and they think he's just trying to sell out to corporate interests. So it, it's sort of an idle threat if Trump says they're going to primary you because Trump doesn't have these people on his side. And that's just the weird dynamic. Moderates are the ones who are most in danger, yet they're the ones who are sort of more easily being dragged along into voting for this. Okay, let's talk about the Senate. Uh, would it be enough for the Republicans to pass the bill even if the, it's doomed in the Senate? This is actually another issue that shows how moderates, why I don't understand why they're going along with this, because they are very vocal in saying we don't want to have to put our name on something that's going to die in the Senate. And yet more and more senators are coming out being like, I cannot vote for this bill. So I don't understand why moderates would agree to move it anyway. I, I have trouble seeing how this is going to get through the Senate. I think there's Rand Paul, you would have to say, yeah. is definitely a no. Um, he, he just wants this entire framework thrown out and then f- to start from scratch. I mean, if Rand Paul changes his vote, unless something magical happens with the bill, he has done so many scathing interviews that could be thrown in his face as him flip-flopping. I think he's in danger. Now, Ted Cruz has flip-flopped in his life, but he's against the bill. Susan Collins probably is not as worried and also has carved out a little room for herself to change. So that's three, and that takes it to 49. Then you have Lisa Murkowski, who's also a similar moderate. Right, she's very, very concerned know. because uh, as a, as representing rural voters, she's similar to Collins. And yeah, then, Mike, and, Mike Lee Mike Lee Utah. is as dead set against it as at least Ted Cruz, if not Paul. So now we're down to, what, 47? Tom, Tom Cotton. Yes, sir. Tom, Tom Cotton. Cotton. And these are all people that if they change, it will really play as, you know, crass political expedience, I think, if the bill doesn't change yeah, massively. But the Senate also is like kind of where crass political expedience has like its home, right? Like I feel like Murkowski, for instance, has been basically saying, I'm worried about how this affects Alaska. Yeah. So if they just carve something out for Alaska, yeah. they'll, they'll probably but be I think able that's, to get her vote. That's legitimate. I mean, yeah. that's her doing her job as a senator saying, I don't know if I could pass it. I don't know if I, I mean, that's good brinksmanship. But it's the other, it's it's Lee and it's uh, Paul and it's uh, Cruz. I'll say it without the us. It's Lee, Paul and Cruz, which would be enough to sink the bill that I don't know how they get off their position. Do you think they could possibly get off their positions, Jim? I would rank it in the order of Rand Paul, most difficult to persuade, then Mike Lee, then Ted Cruz. Because Ted Cruz is actually a little interesting in this fight. He usually is the Rand Paul, the one who's the most against it completely and the most putting his face out there. But he is trying to sort of be a liaison between conservatives and Donald Trump. He's been invited over to the White House for dinner a couple of times. And he also – he's up for re-election. It's possible he could get a primary challenge from the center – I think he's trying to sort of play it a little bit less bombastic in these next couple of years. But it's also, I know, he's been a little harsher the last couple of days, so I don't know if he can really control himself. I feel like if it's going to get through the Senate, you know, the way you would win over Mike Lee and Rand Paul, if it's all possible, would be from refocusing it from what this is doing to the individual market in Obamacare and focusing it on the way it really does cut Medicaid down to size. I think you, if the, if Mitch McConnell were able to reframe this as a, a big strike against the future of socialized medicine by scaling back Medicaid, that might be enough to give them some rhetorical cover. And maybe if the bill gets changed in a few more ways to say, oh, well, we won this or that, like... Maybe that's a way it could happen. I could see this un- unfolding, at least on the conservative side. But that makes it harder than to pass to the Tom Cottons of the world who are worried about what happens to their constituents. Now, I have heard clever people saying the worst thing for Trump would be to pa- or the Republicans would be to pass this bill because it would hurt so many people. It would be so apparent what a disastrous piece of legislation it is. I do not know. I think it would be let's just take what's right in front of us. I think it would be a 
very, very big blow to lose on this fight, even though you've heard, oh, Trump's going to just reposition this as it was all the flaws of Obamacare. Um, If you lose on this fight, just him saying we are going to repeal and replace with something better and you can't do that. Everyone, people who don't understand politics, people who don't care about politics, people who can't get their minds around who was hacked by whom will understand that that was a promise not kept. Yeah, I think that one way to extricate themselves from this, and it's something I think a lot of members and senators are maybe saying quietly, is if this failed, if this didn't get anywhere, they can say, well, we couldn't work it out this time. Uh, we'll try again in a couple of years. In the meantime, we'll try to do tax reform, which, by the way, is not particularly easy either. You know, Then you get back to that idea that if you let Obamacare go on as is, for a couple more years, you know, more problems there could develop and that could build up a little more interest down the road, particularly after the next midterms to give it another go. But it's just hard to see how you can get this conference to agree on anything healthcare related. They're just so far apart. The criticism of Trump that who he's hurting are his voters or the older voters and the rural voters. And that's true. I don't say that that's not true. But I just wonder about the analysis, because if it were the other way around, that they were getting all the goodies, uh, that would be decried also. You know, what about the rest of America? You're supposed to govern all of us. So do you think that does that criticism sting more? I mean, who, I don't think Trump gives a damn. But do you think that that is an apt criticism, Jim? Well, I don't think the criticism is that you're hurting your own voters, as in that's the only sin there, as you know, it's it's against politics 101. It's just against when you do some of the, the changes that conservatives want to do, a lot of these more vulnerable people are going to have to pay more for health insurance. And that's being borne out right now. I mean, this is something that a lot of a lot of Democrats were saying is that, you know, a lot of people are enthusiastic for Trump and a lot of people who've benefited from Obamacare want to get rid of it. And now you're showing what happens when you get rid of certain protections. If you look at these age bans, this is something in the bill where, you know, insurers can only charge older people three times as many as um, younger people. Well, this is expanding that to five to one. So older people are going to pay more. It's less a criticism of why aren't you, you know, following politics 101 versus this is, you know, what people have been trying to say all along. If you make these changes, it's going to hurt these older rural voters who are core for Trump. I actually do think the politics 101 criticism is a little bit apt here just because there's this this bigger issue of Trump kind of being a snake oil salesman, right? Kind of. You know, kind of. We, we've now replaced that phrase with a Trump university salesman. salesman. That's <laughs> the new idiom, but go ahead. But yeah, I mean, and so, you know, Trump showed up and told these people who really had a lot of faith in him that he was going to deliver them great health care. And now this president who from... All evidence, it's not clear he's actually read the bill or like even a summary of the bill. No. He definitely hasn't read the bill. Yeah, okay. Absolutely not, <laughs> yeah, it's, no. It's not, he definitely yeah, hasn't has read it, the Okay, bill. let me rephrase. It's not clear he's even gotten briefed on exactly yes. what's in the bill. Like it's okay. what his grasp of, <laughs> it is not obvious what his grasp of the, the contents of this bill is. And he's just kind of throwing these people who he suckered under the bus for the sake of getting a win, quote unquote. If he gets a win here, it might not even be a win because he's going to end up ruining the lives of his own constituents. All right. Well, I'm going to put both you gentlemen in my sagacity bucket. Jim Newell covers Congress for Slate. Jordan Weissman covers money for Slate. He has a longer title than that, but he also does the uh, Slate Money podcast, which has all this stuff, plus people with English accents sometimes. Thank you, Jim. Thank you, Jordan. Thank you. Thanks, Mike.
And now the spiel. I want to be fair to Donald Trump. I do. I do. He gets criticized unfairly sometimes. Nobody's talking about that. For instance, Ivanka getting her own office. I have no problem with this. Well, I do have a little bit of a problem. It would be nice if he hired someone with, you know, expertise. But that is not going to happen, right? And anyway, Mike Flynn had expertise. I would rather have Ivanka Trump there. Also, though, to be fair, Donald Trump did tweet a couple months ago, I'm not trying to get top-level security clearance for my children. This was a typically false news story. Cut to Ivanka Trump to get top-level security clearance. But I want to also be fair, and this is going to be a big one, by not begrudging his sons the bills they're rolling up. They are pursuing their business. I think it's horrible that their business is an advancement of the Trump industries, but if that's going to be their business, then they have to pursue their business, and security experts and the Secret Service say we have to protect them. So when they go visiting other countries in advance of their business, which shouldn't be their business, they're going to roll up a big tax bill to the American people, all these Secret Service agents who have to book hotel rooms as they travel. The one issue, should the Trump sons be advancing the Trump business interests? No. But the other issue, if they are, should we be paying for it? I think you got to pay for it. And finally, I think the first lady could certainly live separately from Donald Trump. To be unshackled from Donald Trump is something that I would not deny any American of Slovenian or any other descent. However, security decides if you are going to live apart, we have to protect you. Again, it's a chain of events. This decision to live apart, that's fine. Decision to protect her and the son, that's also fine. And in fact, the Obama home was protected in Illinois, just that Fifth Avenue has a lot more foot traffic than his home in suburban Chicago. And that's being totally fair. Totally, see how fair I could be, but I also want to be fair about this. Today, in the White House press briefing, They took a Skype question, a couple of Skype questions, and this normally has been complimented, uh, the White House opening the doors to the type of person who can ask a question. Yeah, but sometimes they ask pretty squirrely guys. So the first one to ask a Skype question was from a Rhode Island radio station, John DePetro. John DePetro asks about a bunch of Democratic politicians who are insufficiently supportive of Trump. And then he asked Sean Spicer this. The audio is Skype. It's pretty crappy Skype, but it's also pretty crappy content. Boycott the inauguration while shooting fundraise around the country. What's the president say to frustrated Trump supporters? Don't feel they're getting crop representation on the local level and in Congress. Spicer answers when asked about frustrated Trump supporters on the local level. Yeah, we'd love to have everyone love Trump. And it's true, many, many people do. But John DiPetro, do you know the name? I saw that he has a radio show on 1540 AM in Newport. And Newport is, of course, in, wait, Newport News? No, it's the one in Rhode Island. Okay, that's not a great sign when they identify the town and you don't know which one they mean. DiPetro used to be in Providence. And before that, he was in Boston. But he has been on a downward trajectory. He's constantly getting fired for, say, the time he called a candidate for office a fat lesbian. Or when he called the head of the Massachusetts Turnpike Authority, Fag Matt. Don't get upset, he immediately clarified. Direct quote. And I don't mean gay fag. 
I just mean the way when you're a sophomore, juvenile in grammar school, and somebody would say you're a sissy boy fag. I don't mean gay fag. I mean like sissy boy. He's a little sissy boy. Wife wears the pants. Every once in a while, John DePetro gets invited to do a national show. This was MSNBC, and he was talking to Dan Abrams. And we're talking about Harlem. And by and large, I lived in New York for eight years. White people don't go to Harlem. If, if Dan Abrams and John DePietro, Bill O'Reilly, some white guys are sitting around a table, and Dan Abrams said, yeah, I was up in Harlem last night, we would think you were either A, looking for drugs, or B, looking for a prostitute. <laughs> you know what? It, it was that, a that is so idiotic, race. John. You'd think this guy would maybe be out of a gig? No. He had, in fact... His most prominent gig, his time in the sun, came this past year during the presidential campaign. Guess what he did? He opened for Donald Trump at an official Trump campaign event in Rhode Island. This is the guy who got the first Skype question at today's press conference. And this wasn't just Spicer calling on a hand that happened to be raised. Oh, we didn't know who it was. You have to apply to ask a Skype question. You have to be vetted. The Skype connection has to be set up. Great job on that, by the way. It, it, it definitely had a thrown-together on the veranda at Mar-a-Lago feel to it, didn't it? But that is, I think, saying all this, I think that's being fair to Donald Trump. And to be fair to John DePetro, he has a comedy video on YouTube. He did stand-up a decade or so ago. There were terrible jokes, but it seemed like the audience liked it. Who here is tired of the illegal aliens? This is way out of control. Did you see at the, uh, the registry, now they arrested 400 illegal aliens that had fraudulent driver's license. Authorities say the key was 200 of them claimed their name was Mario Hilario. (laughs) And then I realized that is a laugh track. The laugh is the same or one of two or three every single time. Listen. Television shows now going for the illegal aliens. Everybody Loves Ramondo is a new show coming out, I'm sure you see. (laughs) South American Idol is a big one with the illegals. Desperate Houseboys is going to be coming soon to ABC. Sex in the Sanctuary City is a new hit that's going to be coming. So John DePetro, White House questioner, attached a laugh track to his own YouTube stand-up video. Even Kellyanne Conway didn't do that. Here actually is Kellyanne doing stand-up. But I think if Larry King would just have all his ex-wives watch his show, his ratings would triple. That's how few people are watching this. I'm also a lawyer. Very few people know that I don't like to admit it. I like to slander myself. I'm a lawyer. I went to GW Law School right down, taught there for four years. Now, also, to be fair to Trump, being very fair, he did say, I am quoting him directly, he said this in his speech in Louisville a couple days ago. I said, where are they getting the steel? Where? And I said, you know what? If people want to build pipelines in the United States, they should use American steel and they should build it and create it right here. That pipe is going to be manufactured right here. That was like a last minute. I'm saying, where are they buying this stuff? Who was buying this? Well, it wasn't USA Today who reported on their website over very engaging vibraphone music. President Trump said the Keystone Pipeline would be built with U.S. steel. Apparently, that is not the case. According to White House spokeswoman Sarah Huckabee Sanders, the Keystone XL oil pipeline won't use American steel in its construction, despite what President Donald Trump says. It would be hard to do an about-face on Keystone because it is already under construction and this steel has been acquired, Ms. Sanders said. As a result, the president was being somewhat misleading when he told the country the Keystone pipeline would be built with domestic steel. To be fair, he was not being somewhat misleading. He was being misleading. Lying, even. 
To be fair, he was lying. To be totally, totally fair. And that has been our new segment, to be totally fair to Donald Trump. And to be totally fair, I don't know that he'll be requesting another segment. That's it for today's show. Mary Wilson just producer sweetened the awe track when she guest starred on Webster in the 80s. Chris Berube just producer will be using only U.S. steel in his home still that he's constructing to make U.S. moonshine. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcast, notes that it's kind of impractical to use only U.S. steel or really any steel in a till. It's also illegal. And who's buying it? Andy Bowers denies that he ever requested military vehicles to be used in the processional when he was installed as commander-in-chief content officer of the Panoply Network. The gist. You know, they got a lot of movies and TV shows about legal residents. Have you heard? Born here on the 4th of July. Permanent Resident Evil. It's not TV. It's HB1O. Ha ha ha. Oomperu depperu and thanks for listening.